Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our Our teaching team team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. To which our community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to expand in faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because because they they anchor us in something something which can can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we exist to join god's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching we hope you enjoy this week's teaching our reading is from john 20 19 to 31 when it was evening on that day the first day of the week and the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the jews Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his his name. The word of the Lord. So this is that time where we got to shuffle all these things around. I feel like I got to have some sort of anecdote every time I'm up here and I'm getting set up just to keep everybody engaged. So I'm going to bring you this this morning. Did you know that over the short period of time that the baseball season has been underway, the pitch clock has shaved a full half hour on average out of every game? You can impress your friends with that. Yeah, it's, I mean, look, if you think baseball is slow and boring, it's at least a half hour shorter than it used to be. So we got that going for us. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. My name is Dan Cook. I'm the teaching pastor here at Genesis, and it's wonderful to be here with you always. And to those of you who are joining us at home, thank you uh, for being part of this community as well. We 
love that we have the opportunity for you if you need to. Look, if you got up this morning and looked outside and went, no, I don't blame you a bit. Thank you for joining us anyway. We are in the season of Easter time. I've mentioned this before, but if you look at the very top of your liturgy on the front page, there's always the label of what season we are in. We are in Easter tide, which you may have thought at one point that Easter was just a single Sunday. Oh, no, 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 no. It's an entire season on the church calendar. Uh, and if you haven't seen before, I actually up on the music stand here have some copies of a, a piece from Illustrated Ministries, which is the company Allie works with, Pastor Allie works with, uh, that has the entire church calendar on it. If you'd like to get an idea of what that looks like, you're welcome to take a copy with you. But Eastertide lasts from Easter Sunday through Pentecost, which is the last weekend in May. So it's a fairly sizable season. And there's a reason for that, right? That resurrection isn't a one-time occurrence. Resurrection isn't something that just happens on Easter Sunday. Resurrection is something that has happened, is happening, and will continue to happen. It's part of the cycle of life. And we've seen that in a ridiculously compressed way over the last about week and a half, where we went from January to mid-April to July in about five days, and now we're back to January again. And please, Lord, let resurrection come again, because I can't handle too much more of this. Uh Uh-huh. All right. No, it's okay. But it's not always that easy to see, and that's you know kind of a lighthearted example, but there are far deeper examples as well of resurrection happening in our lives on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes we can see them, sometimes we can't. And it's those seasons where we're having struggles seeing them that lead us into this passage from the Gospel of John today, which tells us the story, of course, of doubting Thomas, which is interesting because we also talk about following the Revised Common Lectionary here at Genesis. And if you're not familiar with that, it's a three-year cycle of passages. And on the second Sunday of Easter, in each of the three years, A, B, and C, we're currently in year A, this passage from John chapter 20, 19 to 31, appears in all three years on that second Sunday. That's how important this story is. Not the only time that that happens in the lectionary cycle, but it's one of the few. And so it highlights how important this story is. Now, having said that, the name Doubting Thomas has always rankled me. I've never liked it. And there's a series of reasons why. First, because my dad's name is Thomas, and he's one of the most self-assured people I've ever known in my life. There's not a lot of doubt coming from my father. And I respect the heck out of that, by the way. I don't mean that in any kind of negative way. Uh, but So there's just a, a dissonance to hear those two words next to each other in my experience. But as much as that, in fact, maybe even a little more than that, I tend to be a skeptic myself. I tend to ask a lot of questions. It was asking a lot of questions as a kid growing up in Catholic church that sort of drove me away from Catholicism, drove me out of that period of faith in my life. Because too many times I was hearing, no, you can't ask so many questions, you just have to believe. Just take it on faith, as though doubt or questioning or skepticism and faith were somehow opposite ends of the spectrum. But the more I study this passage, the more I study these words, the more I study these ideas, the more I am convinced that doubt is not the antithesis of faith. Not even a little bit. So when we look at this story of Doubting Thomas, what if? What if this story is not about condemning those of us that are doubters, those of us that are skeptics, those people who struggle with their faith? What if it's not that? What if this story is instead trying to teach us that Jesus is ready, willing, and able to meet us where we're at, wherever we're at, with grace and with peace? What if that's the point of this story? 
So we're going to take a couple of attacks at this particular idea. One, I'm going to really try to drive home the fact that doubt is not the antithesis of faith. I really think that's important. And two, we're going to seek an invitation that I think lies in this story for each of us, no matter where we may be at in our journeys, in our discipleship, okay? Those are going to be the two kind of signposts as we go through today. So first of all, faith and doubt. Why do I think Thomas gets a bad rap when it comes to the idea, this nickname, this Doubting Thomas nickname? There's several reasons, again, why I think that's unfair to him, the negative connotation that goes along with that. First reason is because literally everybody else in this story also doubts. Why does he get saddled with this nickname? That's not fair. If you look at the resurrection story across all of the Gospels, everybody doubts. Think back to last week, Pastor Kara preached on the resurrection story through the eyes of Mary Magdalene. If you haven't heard that sermon, I strongly recommend going back and listening to it. It was excellent. But in the course of Mary Magdalene running into Jesus, she has half of a conversation with him without realizing who he is. Why? Because she doubted. Because she showed up there looking for her friend's body, not for a resurrected Jesus. And it wasn't until he opened her eyes that she realized who it was she was talking to. Mary Magdalene doubted. Mary Magdalene tells Peter and John the story of seeing the risen Christ, and they go sprinting for the tomb to see that it's empty themselves. Why? Because they doubted. They doubted their friend. They doubted that resurrection was possible. Even in our passage today, Jesus appears before the 10 apostles, or 10 of the disciples, and it says in verse 20 there, he showed them his hands and his side. Why did he do that? Because they doubted. Because he was trying to prove to them that this was their friend. This was the person they had just spent three years with. This wasn't a ghost. This wasn't an apparition. This was him in his bodily form. Because they doubted. All Thomas was asking for, by the way, if you look at that closely, all Thomas asked for was the exact experience that the other ten apostles got a week earlier. And yet he's the one saddled with the nickname. That's not fair. That's not fair. And of course they doubted. Of course they all doubted. Because remember, Jewish teaching at that time was that resurrection was something that came at the end of time in a communal fashion. God had promised to renew and restore all of creation, and that was going to happen at the end. The idea that resurrection could happen on an individual basis, now, here, that was something completely foreign to them. Remember back to the story of Jesus raising Lazarus. He has, a con- he has a conversation with Martha, Lazarus' sister, prior to raising Lazarus, in which he's hinting at her what's about to happen. And she's unable to track with it. She thinks he's talking about the resurrection at the end of time, and he's trying to tell her, no, the paradigm's shifting. What you thought was real is actually going to be much better than you can possibly imagine. But it's difficult for them to get their heads around it because this teaching had been so a part of their culture for hundreds and thousands of years that resurrection comes at the end of time and Jesus is like, no, resurrection has happened, is happening, and is going to happen. That's a difficult shift for them to make. So of course, of course they doubted. But even if they hadn't doubted in that moment or even once they, just, they realized that, no, this was their friend Jesus, he actually had been resurrection, resurrected. Even once they had even gotten to that point, there's still doubt. There's plenty of stories that I could cite, but I'll just tell one quickly. If you think of Acts 10, and you recall the time that Peter receives a vision from the Lord in which he is told that it's okay for Gentile Christians to eat food that's not kosher. 
Not only is it okay for them to eat it, it's okay for him to eat with them while they're eating this non-kosher food. That was something he would not have believed prior to that vision. And so he joins these Gentile Christians and he has a meal with them while they're eating this non-kosher food. But then we learn in Galatians 2 that that lasts until some folks from Jerusalem show up and suddenly Peter steps back and starts eating exactly how he'd always eaten away from the Gentiles that are eating this non-kosher food. And Paul has to call him out on his hypocrisy. I think it's fair to say that in that moment, Peter doubted that that permission that he received was real, especially in the face of people that were likely to question it. Doubt happens. But does anybody want to question Peter's faith in that moment? I don't. I don't. I don't even think we should question Thomas's faith. Think back again to the story of raising Lazarus. Right before they go back where Jesus is going to raise Lazarus, the apostles warn him and say, hey, the last time you were in that area, they tried to stone you to death. Maybe we shouldn't go back there. And Jesus says, no, we're going. And what does Thomas say? Let us go along so that we might die with him. I'm not questioning Thomas's faith at all, at all. I think what this is telling us is that having doubts does not mean that we don't have faith. There's a Christian philosopher by the name of Paul Tillich, and he once wrote, doubt is not the opposite of faith, it is one element of faith. Or to put it differently, there's a theological studies professor by the name of Ruben Rosario Rodriguez, and Ruben says, doubt is not a personal or moral failing, but merely a natural step in the development of an intimate personal relationship. I'm going to read that again. Doubt is not a personal or moral failing, but merely a natural step in the development of an intimate personal relationship. I think that makes sense when we think through our lives, right? Think through the relationships in your life, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a friend, whether it's extended family members, neighbors, co-workers. If you can think of a relationship in your life where you have never had any doubt whatsoever about what you think about that person or what that person might think about you, then you're a better person than I am. I don't, think, I don't think that happens too often. Because we are created with these minds that are able to recognize patterns and quickly spot inconsistencies. And we live in a broken creation where there are busted patterns and there are bevies of inconsistencies all around us. Of course we're going to doubt. Of course we are. And if, in fact, God required a lack of doubt to be proof of faith, the church would have very few honest members in it. Almost none. So I don't believe that doubt is the antithesis of faith. But I think the final nail in the coffin of that argument, if you're still wavering, all you have to do is look at how Jesus treats Thomas in this passage. Thomas says, no, unless I see the wounds in his hands and unless I, see the, the, I put my finger in his side, I'm not going to believe. Jesus doesn't scold him. Jesus doesn't reject him. Some folks are going to look at verse 29 there and think that Jesus is scolding him. I'm going to argue that he's not. Verse 29 says, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Any reputable commentary will tell you that this is not a condemnation of Thomas in saying this. It's just not. You have to remember the context here. You have to back up a little bit and remember that this fourth gospel, this gospel of John, was the latest gospel written. By the time these stories were written down, a full generation had passed since Jesus' ascension. 
So Jesus is speaking these words, and the gospel writer is remembering and writing down these words because they both anticipate there being a time where folks are going to have doubts very similar to what Thomas has, only Jesus won't be there to show up in person and let them touch the wounds and let him see the, the marks in his hands. And yet he knows that some of those folks are still going to believe, and so he pronounces a blessing on them. That's all it is. It's nothing against Thomas. It's all about these future people. Jesus doesn't reject Thomas. Jesus doesn't scold Thomas. Jesus shows up, this time in bodily form. So I brought with me today a printing of a painting by a Renaissance artist named Caravaggio. And the painting's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. And I want you at some point when you come up for Eucharist or maybe after the service to come up and take a look because you really need to see the look and the posture, the look on Jesus' face and the posture that he has here. You won't see frustration, you won't see annoyance, you won't see, really, Thomas? What you see is love. What you see is grace. What you see is a Jesus who shows up with peace. Three times in this passage, twice when he shows up to the ten and once when he first shows up for Thomas, Jesus walks in and says, peace be with you, which is, not, which is a common greeting, but is not just a common greeting. The Hebrew word there would be shalom. And remember, as we've taught so often, shalom isn't just peace in terms of calm and quiet, but it's peace in terms of wholeness, in terms of completeness. So yes, there's calmness and there's quiet involved, but there's much, much more than that. Jesus shows up with grace, and Jesus shows up to bring that wholeness, to bring that completeness to our lives. That's how Jesus shows up for Thomas. And I think the invitation, as we shift to our second point, the invitation is for us to allow Jesus to show up for us in that same way. Jesus is not going to ever force himself on us, but he will show up for us if we allow it. What does that mean, to allow Jesus to show up for us? It means that we bring these questions and these doubts and these struggles that we have, especially especially when they concern Jesus himself and our faith in Jesus specifically, we can bring those to him. We can allow him to come and wrestle with those along with us because we can trust that Jesus shows up with grace and with peace. Thomas was dubious about whether Jesus had truly been resurrected. He was. Why? He was... He was Dubious, even though he had heard this story from people that you would assume he trusted, the other apostles. He was dubious even though he had been with Jesus when Lazarus was raised from the dead. He had seen Jesus raise somebody from the dead, and yet he still was skeptical. And he was dubious even though he'd followed this man, Jesus, for three years and watched him perform miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet he still doubted why. I suggest this because Thomas's whole world had just been rocked. The man was shook because like so many of his friends, he had bought fully into this idea as Jesus as the Messiah. But the type of Messiah he believed Jesus was wasn't the Messiah that Jesus actually came to be. Remember, so many of these people thought that the Messiah was the guy that was going to show up, help them overthrow the Romans, and reestablish Israel to its rightful place as God's favored people. That's who they thought Jesus was going to be. 
That's the vision that Thomas had decided to dedicate his life to. Remember back to the Lazarus story. Willing to give his life to follow this man. And that entire vision got destroyed with Jesus dying on the cross. His whole life was pointed in a certain direction and bam, here's a left turn he didn't see coming. I would suggest all of us have had an experience like that or multiple experiences like that. I know I have. I'll tell you one story. When I was an undergraduate in college, since about eighth grade, I knew what I was going to do. I was going to get a meteorology degree and I was going to go work, not, on, not as a TV meteorologist, but for a private company. I was actually in the process of discussing an internship with NASA in Houston. When I finally came to the conclusion, after beating my head against a wall for about three years, that while I was good at science and math, I wasn't good enough at science and math to get this meteorology degree. And so I had to change majors. I had to change the direction of my life. And so I changed, of course, like you do, to a radio degree, to a communications degree, which is a Bachelor of Arts. So everything that was an elective became required, and everything that was required now became an elective, and I knew I was going to be in college for a wee bit longer than four years. But not only was I going to be in college longer, I had to change, I had to transfer. Because Madison, when I was, where I was going initially, didn't have a radio program, didn't have that communications degree that I decided I wanted to get. So I have to change schools, I have to change towns, I have to change roommates, I have to change everything in my life. I refer to it as my midlife crisis at 21. <laughs> now, as somebody who doesn't generally handle change well, that much change was overwhelming. And it got to me. I remember vividly one night in this new house that I was living in, just being so anxious, so overwhelmed, I just had to get out. And so I went storming out of the house. I don't know where I was going, I just needed to get out. And I walked out the door, and for some reason I stopped, and I looked up, and there was the constellation Orion. And I don't know what about that felt calming, but it did in that moment. More so when the next night I went out, and there it was again, and it shifted a little bit in the sky, but there it was. And the next night, and the next night, and the next night. And suddenly in this time of my life with everything was changing, and all this chaos was swirling around me, and I was fighting to keep my head above water, here was something that was constant every single night. I didn't have a relationship with God at that point in my life. I didn't know God. God knew me. And I'm thoroughly convinced now that the reason when I walked out that I stopped and I looked up is because Jesus showed up with grace and with peace. God knew what I needed in that moment. Even though we didn't have a relationship, He knew. And He showed up. Because that's what Jesus does. He won't force Himself on us but he likes to give a little nudge once in a while. Just, hey, look up for a minute. Everything's going to be okay. And that gave me the foundation, that gave me the solidity that I needed in that moment in my life to be able to move forward. And I think from conversations that I've had with people who are wrestling with their faith, people that are going through the buzzword, of course, now is deconstruction. I think people that are in that mode or dealing with that part of their journey of their faith life are experiencing much the same thing. Something that was old, that offered certainty, no longer works for them. And they're not sure what to replace it with. They're not even sure that it can be replaced. That's an uncomfortable position to be in. But I think the invitation that exists here in the story of Thomas, for those folks, for all of us, the invitation that exists there is, yeah, go ahead and do whatever you need to do. But bring that doubt, bring that uncertainty, bring those questions. You can, you're allowed to bring that stuff to Jesus as our kids come back. It's okay. They can make a little noise. It's all good. 
Balloons? Oh, they got to make balloon stuff down there today? I'm very, very jealous. Unbelievable. Thanks, Pastor Allie. But I think the invitation for today is to allow Jesus to come and wrestle with that stuff with us. Because we can trust, based on this story, that Jesus is going to show up with grace and with peace. Not with judgment, not with rejection, not with scolding, but with grace and with peace. Look, for those of you that are in that position of deconstruction or in that journey of deconstruction, the truth is that this human institution that we've built up around following Jesus has done some good in the world, done a lot of good in the world. It's also done a tremendous amount of harm to some people. And so if you're one of those people sitting in here today or watching at home that feels like you've been harmed by the church, I want to say, I'm sorry. You deserve better than that. And the church, we the church, have failed you. And I want to say that I believe no matter where you're at in that journey, Jesus is ready, willing, and able to show up and meet you with grace and with peace. I believe that the Jesus that we meet in the Gospels, forget about dogma, forget about doctrine, forget about the church, the Jesus we meet in the Gospel stories, that Christ that shows up for Thomas with grace and blesses him with shalom, that Christ that shows up and offers that grace and that peace to everyone that societal institutions threaten to marginalize, that Christ that asks us to show up for our friends and our family and our community with that same kind of grace and with that same kind of peace and beyond even our friends and our community to people that might even wish to do us harm asks us to show up with that grace and that peace. That Christ, that if we will allow it, will show up and walk with us through our doubts, through our questions, through our uncertainty, that Christ is always worth following. Whether you're at church or you're not at church, that Christ is always worth following. So as we read this story, I said there were two questions that I wanted to address. One is doubt the antithesis of faith. I hope by now you're with me and you believe no. If not, come find me afterwards. We can talk some more. I think I can argue you into agreement. And the other question is, what is the invitation that God has for us in this story? And I want to phrase it this way. I believe that the invitation God has for us is to deepen our relationship with God by bringing doubts, bringing questions, bringing struggles to Christ who, through this story and through many others like it in the Gospels, we can trust will meet us with grace and with shalom. Deep, intimate, personal relationships do not require blind faith. I want to say that again. The deep, personal relationships, the kind of relationship God wants to have with us, do not require blind faith. They require trust. And trust is achieved by working through doubts, not by dismissing them, not by shoving them in a closet somewhere, not by pressing them down deep inside and never talking about them. Trust is built by working through doubts, and that's how you achieve relationship. And the entire point of the Gospel of John is to convince you that a relationship with Christ is going to be beneficial to your life. So I will be fine never referring to this gentleman as doubting Thomas again, and I hope you will too. He is Thomas, a follower of Christ, like me and like all of you. And thank God for that opportunity. Amen. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions or would, would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.